Okay, we're live. Hi, this is William Ramsey. Welcome to William Ramsey Investigates. On tonight's show, I have a very special guest. His name is J. Michael Bennett, and he published a book in 2020. The title of the book is Two Masters and Two Gospels. It's volume one, and the subtitle is The Teaching of Jesus First the Leaving of the Pharisees in Talk Radio and Cable News. And I actually interviewed with Mike 11 years ago. I was looking back right. when he was on Future Quake when I published Prophet of Evil and was printing it out for my printer. Yeah, Future um, Quake, yeah. yeah. So he did seven years of Future Quake, which you can find as Dr. Future. Mike Bennett was, is also Dr. Future. You can find all his great shows back at www.futurequake.com. They're still there. I actually went back and looked at mine that I did. So, But uh, he's also writing a very long series of books right now. Um, but also has been involved in other books, two of which are How to Overcome the Most Frightening Issues You Will Face This Century and Pandemonium's Engine, both of Defender Publishing. He was a researcher and on-camera host of the documentary Dark Clouds Over Elberton, the true story of the Georgia Guidestones, the Georgia Monoliths. And he also posts his musings at the blog site dedicated to Joshua and Caleb and other minority views of God's people, the Two Spies Report, at www.twospiesreport.wordpress.com. So he hasn't been canceled there. And also <laughs> also hosts mikebennettbooks.com. And uh, I really enjoyed reading this book. It really clarified a lot of my, my feelings about the modern Christian church that I really hadn't seen uh, written as clearly as Mike has done. But he's going to talk more about that. So Michael Bennett, are you there? Yes, I am. Thank you so much for having me on the show. And I want to just thank all of your listeners. I'm sure they come from a wide array of backgrounds, and I'll try to keep something that's relevant to everybody there. Oh, I think but, this is re I think this is relevant to everybody. I think this book is very important because also I think you in your insights into kind of the modern Christian with the leaving of the Pharisees and talk radio news and cable news is how certain people, even who aren't Christians, perceive Christianity. So right. it's not this book to me perception wasn't just as somebody who's a Christian, but non-Christian, what they think Christianity is. So maybe mm -hmm. you can talk, for people who don't know, talk a little bit about your background, if you can, Mike, and then how, what led you to write this excellent book, Two Masters and Two Cousins. Okay. Yeah, my, my background in credentials and education are not in theology or social sciences. They're in uh, regular science. I'm a, my PhD is in mechanical engineering. I was a scientist for the Air Force Research Lab, civilian scientist for 16 years. I developed my own technologies in fire and explosion protection for aircraft and police cars and NASCAR and things and sold those patents to different companies and got them integrated and used in the field to keep policemen from burning up and other people and people out in Iraq and elsewhere. And um, that provided me an opportunity to look at another side of my life. And I started Future Quake back in 2005 when Radio Free Nashville community, community radio station got off uh, the air. I helped them get on uh, back then. It was on there for about three years and then on Christian radio for about another three or four years. And I decided that um, I had done all I wanted to do. I, you know, I didn't want to be self-perpetuating and jump the shark, you know. So I um, was really burdened about what was going on in Middle Tennessee here where I live in the greater Nashville area about the whole anti-Sharia movement. And it got to be sort of a crazy mania. And it was being led by fellow Christians like me. And a lot of grifters and demagogues and others were coming in to make money off of it. So I started writing a book series that I thought would be a single book. And it's now at 12 volumes 
I haven't released them yet. They got preempted by the book we'll talk about tonight, but uh, called the Holy War Chronicles. And it gets into the history of aggressive uh, confrontational religious struggles or holy wars. And I found a lot of shocking things about my own history. I was raised in an ideal Bible Belt evangelical culture, Southern Baptist with a little Church of Christ training and Calvary Chapel and other things like that. And so I'm still very serious about my Christian faith, but I've had a lot of changes that go back during the evolution of those years of future quake, probably 2006, 2007, started doubting some information that heard in a field that was cultural, not, not Bible information, but cultural information. And this book actually sort of shows some skeletons in the closet. I am more a practicing believer than ever, but what I really target are cultural things that are stumbling blocks that take thinking people who are inquirers and really have really problem with it. And I understand why they do. And I think we have to expose our dirty laundry level with people, be genuine, authentic. And that's what a lot of this book does. And it really focuses on how money and material wealth and the power it brings. Um, you know, you could take it all the way back to the early days of the church has been a perpetual struggle and we've got to expose it so we can have something genuine uh, for people of goodwill to be attracted to. And so you do start off kind of when your intro, you talk about this kind of outlook of how um, people are looking today and the differential. And you start off talking about the leaving of the Pharisees ideology explained. Can you talk about those kind of introductory chapters of your book? Yeah. You know, what triggered me doing this book, because again, it was an interruption from, I was trying to finish up this Holy War Chronicle series and there's plenty in there to interest the directions that I know you take in your research. There's a lot more to expose there, but I got interrupted because Guys like Adam Sane, who's a close friend of mine over at Conspiracy Normal, and others were saying, you know, you really need to speak up about what's going on in the last four or five years, particularly with the Trump phenomenon and things like this. Um, there, Wherever you stand on that, you can't say that it's not important and significant. And um, so I finally, on my Two Spies Report blog, since it only does controversial topics, uh, I started asking some hard questions about it, but here's the thing that I've really noticed more and it's, it didn't start then, but it's crescendoed. And that is when I talk to a lot of my friends, family members, neighbors, folks at church that I know are believers. Um, when they're talking about public issues, like real hot button issues, I don't hear them explaining their positions and why they had it because here's what Jesus said, or here's what, the apostles said or Old Testament or whatever. What they say is what I recognize are talking points over off of talk radio and cable news that they just recite them verbatim without any question. And it's gone on so consistently that I, I make an assertion here that it really has become sort of another gospel. And, and the reason why I think it's so successful is you think about the saturation mentally that people get when they're hearing something is a captive audience in a car and their commute every day for almost an hour on talk radio. They go to work. They're hearing it in the background on the radio while they're at work. They're another captive audience for another hour with nothing else to do but listen. Then they turn on the TV, watch cable news while they're eating, and oftentimes even watch it on Sunday morning even before they head off to church. In contrast to that, if they're church-going people and if they go to a healthy church, they may sit down and get 20-minute sermon 
that may on some weeks be about what Jesus said or the Sermon on the Mount or blessed are the poor or turn the other cheek or whatever, but it's overwhelmed by a totally different message they're getting, you know, countless hours the rest of the week. So it's mere saturation of what they're getting and why this is dominating their thinking. And, and the other thing I noticed was that the positions about how they look at the poor, how they look at people on the margins, people are minorities of not only just race, but religion or any other kind of means, uh, immigrants, other folks like this, is that they're a burden. They distrust them. They're paranoid. The only interest they have in is exploiting them as, as low cost labor. Otherwise, I could care less about them. Uh, they're extremely uh, distrustful of, of government just as an entity and any role that it has. And I've noticed this and many other of these traits, and, and I, I, I detected that it's really the kind of views of what I would call the wealth class. The wealth class of the well-to-do, the bankers, CEOs, the, the class of people that basically want to maintain their special position and their assets for it, and, and they overlap. And, and I also realized, having sat in church and going through the Gospels again recently, that that was exactly the position that the Pharisees had. And Jesus told his followers, he said, uh, beware of the leaven of the Sadducees and the Pharisees. And later he explained to them, because they didn't get it, that it was their doctrine. And it says later that, that they did not like Jesus' teaching, and I quote the verse at the beginning of the book, because they were lovers of money. So I go through all of the stories, basically the Gospels of the Pharisees and their interactions with Jesus, and you can pick off every one of them and find out it was the kind of thought that the wealthy and the rich would have, being condescending toward people of Galilee or poor widows or a guy that was born blind, you know, or Samaritans, or, perhaps. Samaritans, they're all a danger. They're all coming, you know, after our stuff. And so I started documenting it and I came up with something like 20, 30 attributes of the Pharisees. And these were all wealth class, upper crust. You know, it's the kind of value system that you'd associate with Thurston Howell III on Gilligan's Island or Mr. Drysdale on the Beverly Hillbillies, you know. Uh, and if you don't mind, do you have a second? I can even read off a couple of them. Please do. If, yes, if please you don't do. Mind, just so people know what I'm talking about. All of these are ones that I document specific passages historically that reveal what, what they were like when they dealt with Jesus and why Jesus was a complete contrast to them. And that's why he said you had to be really poor in spirit and that it was really hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom because of the value system and attitude toward your neighbor that comes with it. Uh, some of the things I documented from their, their actual statements and deeds were that um, followers of God should listen to and trust less in their own daily interactions with him or their God-given conscience, common sense or even their own reading of the sacred text, and rather rely on religious leaders as clerical gatekeepers and self-appointed authorities over them and their own interpretations. Um, they believe that purity rituals intended merely for special public sacramental acts uh, should be applied to every action, large and small in daily life, as a yoke beyond that required by the law, as a means of control and to separate out the elite, outwardly pious and compliant from others. Um, they were in, they had an ingrained status as a religious and cultural establishment. 
uh, and that the wealth and complicity with secular powers of intertwined agendas of power preservation that comes with it. And their goal was to conserve uh, the status of the existing power holders of the religious and public society, like the Sadducees, who actually de-emphasized the afterlife. They were more kingdom now people. And the Pharisees, who conserved their hold on the cultural and piety family issues, sort of like the religious right today. Uh, they, they combated each other, but they often colluded with each other to stop out righteous usurpers. Um, Jesus said that these religious leader experts, just like our experts today of God's commandments, they, they err, knowing not the scripture nor the power of God. Uh, like the Sadducees, their actions and contempt for the poor and disadvantaged suggest that they either do not believe God's view on matter in scripture which I document in the book, as you know, or they don't believe that they'll be accountable for their disobedience in an afterlife. Uh, being publicly lauded and recognized for their piety and godliness is very important to them in their recognition in media and at conferences, the awards and the honorary doctorates they receive, and the public support as evidenced by contributions to their nonprofit organizations. They feel free to interrupt me here. I don't want to go on. Too well, I was long. just going to say, I think one of the excellent things about your book is it shows your deep knowledge of that history, too, because I learned a lot about what was happening in Jerusalem when Christ was in Jerusalem, because it was the Sadducees and Pharisees. But the, you note that the sons of Annas right. and Anas were part of the aristocracy, but they also owned some of these booths and temples that were exchanged and people needed to buy stuff to conduct the temple ceremonies. No. So you see another aspect of that, of the gospels is this financial element. You have become a den of robbers, you say, and you see all these, these things happening. So it's really, there's a financial kind of concern in, or in that, in the narrative, mm -hmm. the gospel narratives in there. That was that, the base of their operations and their main concern, just like, a lot of our most high-profile ministries are today. That that was called the stalls of Annas. You could read that from actually from the Jewish historical literature. Right. And, you brought up the 1906 Jewish Encyclopedia. Right. The the uh, Annas was sort of the boss hog of that era. Uh, he was the the priest emeritus, high priest emeritus, but he was the power behind the throne. And his sons, he was able to get those hand picked in secession to run during that era. And they were the main enemies of Jesus and of the early church after that. But the stalls of Annas was their money-making operation where they ran all of that temple money, where they money exchange, you know, they had their own cryptocurrency, I guess you could say. Right. And they, they, they ran that. And when Jesus came, it's what I didn't know when I started researching and been in church for half a century was that he turned over those, those tables that they had not once, but twice. Yeah. He, he did it first when he first kicked off his ministry. He went there into Jerusalem and did that display. And I think what he was doing was telling uh, the powers that be there and the principalities and powers that ran them that he knew the base of what they were about and what the real enemy was there with the great city Babylon. And he was declaring war on it. And the second time he did it was at the very end of his ministry when the Passion Week uh, was initiated and he went to Jerusalem to die. And I think he knew the one way for sure to make sure these religious folk would kill him. And that was to hit him in the pocketbook again. So he did that a second time. And sure enough, that was a guarantee 
that they came and uh, took action to, to rub him out. And it's actually interesting. I think you like they likened or you noted in your book that the Sadducee aristocracy aristocracy was similar to the Epicureans, which uh, you know I found very interesting. Uh, yeah, similarity between those two groups. But then, like, so they I think it's mentioned, isn't the the sons of Annas weren't they responsible for the death of the brother of Christ, James? Right, right, right. right. Yeah, they really were the arch enemies. They were like the Moriarty. Uh, for the early church uh, be because of this, you know, financial impact and other kind of things. They weren't uh, intimidated by them. They would try to threaten them in the temple. They weren't intimidated. They weren't feeding their financial coffers. Um, and so, you know, that, that was a major, major threat to them. And so um, this has been something, if you go back, I, I didn't have this in the book, but um, you look back even in the early church, in, you, in Fox's book of Martyrs, it says that the people had of the early church had great favor with the pagans in the surrounding communities to the point that they would even protect them when persecution would come until they started getting wealthy and started building big church institutions. And in Fox's Book of Martyrs, it says when they started building the churches, the people lost respect for them. And they got, I mean, basically they were centralizing their money. They weren't dispensing it out. They weren't, you know, having it go out to help other people. They weren't poor anymore. Uh, and in fact, even, um, and I don't mean this about the Bishop of Rome per se or anything, but the church in Rome, the people who were there tended to be a lot wealthier than the slaves and the other lower class economic folks in the other churches in the world. And so they were the ones underwriting a lot of the other churches in the early church. And with that came a lot of influence. And so they had a lot of influence on how things were done simply because they were writing the checks. And so this has always been a problem in, in the church. And then once Constantine came along, you know, all of the original purity of the church, pretty much except for the people out in the wilderness, it went to the by side once they became insiders and had all access to establishment power. And then all of these people who really didn't even believe in God were running to join the church because that was the end thing to do at the time. Right. That's that's where the power was. Right. So right. maybe that was very similar to what was happening at the temple, too. Right. So people wanted to be part of the temple complex at that time because mm -hmm. tons of money was coming in. People were paying for sacrificial animals and everything. Right. To conduct right. rituals there. So and that's what our power leaders do now Our you know, our uh, you know, our, our uh, politicians will come hold up a Bible and they'll go to Liberty University or go in front of a church, hold up their grandmother's Bible. And they're trying to do the same thing. Right. It's not because they're having some spiritual incident. They see a power center there and they want a piece of it. Yeah. And it makes me think of Trump holding up that Bible when he walked across the park there. It just looked so, so staged. It looked so inauthentic. It was. Yeah. The, the bigger problem are the people who don't see that it's staged. It's like, how do these people function in life when they can't see when they're being pandered to and exploited? And how can people who can't see that, how can they be a role model or leaders to other people in their society and provide wisdom and discernment to them when things that blatant are, are paraded right in front of their nose? Right. And you talk about the influence of the evangelical movement behind Trump and how powerful it was and how a, a, an important voting block they are to Trump, but also right. kind of their character characteristics too. Can you talk, maybe talk about some of these, you talk about some of the modern evangelical leaders and their support of Trump. Can you well, on them? yeah, um, uh, you know, I can 
talk a little bit about the about the Grams and Jerry Falwell Jr. Are there others that you'd like me to discuss in particular? Just all the, you know, those that people know is probably good. Maybe okay. the leaders too, and then we can cover the kind of, yeah, uh, yeah. you know, Fox News, Hannity, et cetera. Well, in the last few years, and I know this may alienate some of your listeners, and I don't intend to do that, but I only talk about controversial things. That's why the Two Spies Report is a, uh, what I call a Christian minority report, because it it asks about the things that are unspeakable that you should never you should whisper about, and that's what I think it should be talked about. But the fact of the matter is that it was and is the core of the Trump movement is the evangelical culture. I think seventy seventy six percent of evangelicals that voted voted for Donald Trump, and he has retained that even after the uh, you know the trials for the uh, um, impeachment both of them, uh, for the other things that came out, for the insurrection that happened, they have stayed solid with him in the middle of all that. Charlottesville, the, uh, the you know, the Access Hollywood tapes that came out, uh, he has been solid in keeping that support. So he would be nothing without their basic support. I think they reflect each other. I have mentioned uh, at many places that I think they have a Faustian bargain. And frankly, I can't really figure out which one of them is Faust and which one of them is the devil. Oh, that's a good point. I mean, but, right. You know, please continue. Well, um, just, you know, the money and its influence on the people that we've looked, those of us who grew up in church have looked up to, is not limited to the TV evangelists, the Jim Bakers and, you know, those got Jimmy Swaggerts and those kind of people like that. We, we sort of quarantine those guys you know, because they were just downright comical in their extreme. Uh, but really the people who are more institutional have been, have, you know, that we all sort of accept. And w one person I bring up that is a third rail that you're never as a believer supposed to say anything critiquing about. And by the way, I think you saw at the beginning of my book, I have an adage that that which we do not critique, we worship. So when I critique uh, these people, it's not because I think I'm better than them or I'm sinless or, you know, anything or that I want to be fair. But the fact is, I believe that when you critique everything and put it up to the standard of Jesus, it's an act of worship for him because everything else, including me, is fair game. And so when I look at somebody like a Billy Graham, for example, who um, is the closest thing to God that most people see, and I know a lot of people claim that they had a spiritual experience at a you know a crusade and i'm not trying to doubt that i hope a lot of them are real um i know some pastors who who would minister to people after those crusades and they didn't have a high percentage of those people showed up for counseling after their emotional you know movement at the altar but i'm sure some of them are legit and i thank god for that but the, the if you look at graham and his history it's a very intriguing situation he um he had a lot of financial ambitions. He was extremely successful salesman. He was a fuller brush salesman door to door, and he got to be known for it. And he made statements. I believe it was in Time magazine that he said, selling the gospel is like selling soap. Right. And he says, if you if these techniques are good for selling soap, why can't we use them for selling the gospel? And so it was always important to him to get in a position where he was sort of an insider. Or elite, and of course, um, a lot of people know that uh, William Randolph Hearst, who owned the largest uh, array of newspapers in the country at the time, 
was the guy who really pushed him because he was a super fire-breathing anti-communist, Jerry Falwell. I mean, uh, um, Billy Graham was. And so overnight, he, he told the newspapers to puff Graham, and he became an overnight sensation. But, you know, when he died, he died a few years ago. And, and by the way, I will mention, uh, one of the sad things about him is that, he, you know, he really had a weird relationship with Martin Luther King. Uh, and when Martin Luther King was in the Birmingham jail, he told the press, Billy Graham, I actually have the original documents where he talked about how he needed to back off. Billy Graham needed, I mean, uh, Martin Luther King needed to back off all this civil rights talk. Uh, and it, it, you know, he never wanted to really commit too much to anything like that, including the segregated issues of the of where the meetings were. As far as the student war protesters in Vietnam, that were protesting and the things that finally the Pentagon papers and showed had merit. He, he said that they were basically colluding and we're giving aid and comfort to the enemy. That's how he referred to our young people and never really took those statements back. And I think a lot of what we call is the generation gap, particularly that affected churches and, and the faith community. We can say that was a seminal moment. And, and I think, I personally think if Billy Graham had decided then that enough is enough. And he went down there and marched with those young people. A lot of those young people would be very, very involved in the Christian faith right now. And probably that Vietnam War would have ended promptly and would have saved tens of thousands of our, our fellow citizens' lives because that, that war would not have kept on if Billy Graham had said that it was not right. But but the main point that I, that I mentioned here is that, in, in fact, I'll just mention quickly that one of the things that came out from from the Nixon library was that he was made a basically a de facto cabinet member and he submitted a proposal to bomb all the dams in North Vietnam to drown all of the villagers, the civilian villagers there, which was actually a war crime. It, it was World War II was a war crime to do that. And that and that came out. But as far as his money, you know, he died at the age of ninety nine. And at 99, he was down to, I think his reports down to his last $25 million right. he was just at like the that. age of 99. Now, I had some early reports I couldn't find and confirm that, that at one time it was up to like $120 million. Wow. But really, it, it, the point's moot because most of that money, how these guys operate, it's in their organization. The Billy Graham organization actually bought something like, I forget how many thousand acres of property uh, they built a, a thousand, I think it was a thousand acres of Blue Ridge Mountains. They built a $27 million library. Um, and a lot of that money, you know, including the places where he lived, all that kind of stuff was in their coffers. And that's for tax purposes right. because well, tax free, right? the religious organizations have incredible amounts of property rather than dispersing their goods out to the poor, the needy. Uh, we allow them to, keep it and cling onto it and build these empires and build build bigger barns and all types huge numbers too mike they're massive billions like you're talking some of these things i I had an interview with a guy from ministry watch and the kind of money that's in being donated isn't millions it's billions so yeah i mean actually billy graham was actually compared to some of these other preachers he was actually kind of a kind of poor 
if you if you were talking yeah, exactly right i think rick warren is somewhere in the same ballpark you know granted he donates a lot of his money away joel osteen's around 40 million what i found ken copeland is the is the biggie in terms in the u.s he his estimate is at 760 million that he's setting on. Now you got a lot of preachers in Nigeria, you know, and some other prosperity gospel guys that are way up there too. But um, uh, it's funny. You mentioned uh, ministry watch. Uh, Mr. Warren there has been one of my few supporters. Oh. Uh, he, he actually has spoken well of me and hopefully he'll have me on his podcast soon because he's doing a good work. It's uh, so. it's, it's a thankless job. It's a job where, you get a lot of enemies. You don't get a lot of support. It's not a way to generate money. Um, or friends, know, what, right? Or, or friends, friends within the Christian community. I can't imagine your book is popular with any of these types of people. I've lost. I've lost the overwhelming support that I had. You know, we had about eighty thousand followers at its heyday of Future Quake, and people are excited when I was writing books. And when they found out what I was talking about in this, and again, I'm more committed to my Christian faith than I've ever been in my entire life. But I want to be genuine. And I wanted to say something that's honest and relevant. And most of them have dumped me and, you know, they've sunk me like a three foot putt and they're gone. Um, my, some of my Christian mentors want anything to do with me. Most of them, you know, most of church folk, uh, family members. Um, and that's where, you know, you're touching a nerve. Well, I have some other friends that are going through the same thing too. Um, you know, I've met a few new friends, but Friends are few and far between, and that's why I was so gracious and, and excited when you asked me to come on the show, because these are conversations we need to have. But I was going to point out Franklin, uh, Franklin Graham. Um, he's a chip off the old block, and he's the guy who's you know in the heyday now. You know his endorsement of Trump. I think went all the way back to 2012. He was wanting him to run back then, but you know just a few years ago, actually, if you take it even all the way back to 2008. Franklin Graham in 2008 was making about 1.2 million in his, you know, income. Samaritan's purse. Is that what he was making? The, his income? Well, the lion's share of it was at Samaritan's purse. Now his dad only made about 450,000 a year. I say only. Now you remember, these are widows mites. These are, these are people who are on fixed income that are writing a check going, sometimes cutting their pills in half and they're sending money into these people or they're well healed people you know, like the Coors family and others uh, that are taking care of these folks. But, you know, you, you think about Samaritan's Purse, I think about 880000 of that $1.2 came from Samaritan's Purse. He was drawing two full-time checks. The other one was Billy Graham. You know, they, they give people um, food to people who are within a day of death that are just barely clinging to life and probably spending no more than a dollar or less a day to keep people alive with rice and water and things like that. So you think about that $880,000 that comes off the top, that's 880,000 people that are going to go without that life saving food today because an extremely wealthy family has got to take that cut off the top uh, when it goes in there. Those nonprofits too, they live very high on the hog too. They, uh, there's a lot of ways that they spend other monies other than salary benefits, travel expenditures. Yeah. I yeah. mean, it's very, they live very nice. And a perfect example is Jerry Falwell Jr. So you have, and I think you explained in your book that, uh, uh, not Billy Graham, Franklin Graham said that he was taking zero money from one group that was public, right? But then he was taking a hefty salary from Samaritan's Purse. So he well, kinda, 
Yeah, and, and what he did was, see, what happened is when the Great Recession hit, they laid off over 10% of their people. And the way these organizations work is they say, oh, we can't pay you very much at Starvation Wage because it's a Christian ministry. You you, ha- you have to believe it's a ministry. And I have a good friend of mine who worked at Liberty, and they told him the same thing, whereas everybody at the top is making a killing. And they laid off all these people, and it looked so bad that the board recommended that he suspend at least one of his paychecks and uh the 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 charlotte observer got into it finding the stuff out well as soon as the coast was clear and the press kept looking they quietly reinstated it and a lot of the compensation goes into retirement plans corporations are allowed to take a windfall of their money and sort of hide it you know and launder it into retirement plans and things like that so that's like a whole nother set of money right but but this is it's a it's a it's a culture it's a culture. And I think the person who is um, who speaks most of it is the fellow you mentioned in, in the common vernacular. And that's Frank. That's a uh, um, uh, Jerry Falwell Jr. Because he's just unabashed about it. He has an absolute contempt for the average person. He was born in wealth. He was born in privilege. He um, basically had everything, you know, handed on a plate that he could do. And, you know, some of my quotes in the book, he, he goes after guys like Russell Moore, who's a Christian ethicist, who, you know, resigned from the Southern Baptist because they wouldn't deal with sexual abuse and uh, racial issues and things like that. Very conservative guy. But, you know, he criticized him. He says, you're nothing but an employee. He says, what kind of business have you started off the ground? He says, That's, I've done real estate and you've just been an employee. And so th- this is the mindset that they have. And in the book, I-, I quote from the people who worked there that talk about how belittling he was of everyone, how they were treated like king and queen. Now, when I wrote this book, it- this was written over 2018, 2019. Right, so wrote, all this stuff hadn't really come out yet. Is that right? Well, I-, I was showing what uh, sadly a lot of Christians don't do is look at it, investigative reporting. And Reuters and Politico were both hot on the trail with weird stuff that was going on with Jerry Falwell Jr. and this pool boy, Giancarlo Granda, who he met at the Fountain Blue in Miami, which yeah. is this sort of decadent hotel. It's where Lady Gaga, Madonna, and these people go party. And he, he met him down there. Uh, he put him in charge of this hostel down there. That was right, like, to, was a gay-friendly hostel, not a gay-friendly, yeah. no religion allowed in it, and right. he he took money from the bank that bankrolled Liberty to buy it, and he was flying him on his plane. This guy was a big, buff, muscle-bound kind of guy. They would go hang out together. He he take the Liberty jet and fly him up, hang out with the family. Um, they since have another guy who I know somebody who knows who had a gym who also was trying to make his wife buff because they're, they're obsessed with like their sexual prowess and how uh, attractive they are. And so he was working on trying to make them and, and Jerry's wife more. Yeah, his attractive. name was Benjamin Crosswhite. I had not right. heard his name until your book. Yet. Right. Right. And same thing, big buff young guy. And these guys, what, what you find when you dig through and I went through and verified this through my own, you know, going through source material, you find these weird pictures of them riding bareback 
shirtless with Jerry Falwell Jr. You're talking about this tradition that they have to do and putting weird things on his Instagram of their bareback riding shirtless and, you know, putting like these cartoon uh, rainbows on pictures of the sky with crossway saying, we really love our rainbows, don't we, Jerry? And it really got people wondering there's something weird going on with this whole thing. And, and it was understood that Becky was a part of it. I got incredible criticism for putting this, although it was all extremely well documented and right. it was documented not only by major journalists, investigative journalists, but also the source material, which I kept and archived. And, and then of course it all sort of hit the fan after this book was published when, you know, when it finally came out that uh, they sort of stuck it to Mr. Granda uh, over that property. So they had pictures of him and Jerry's wife doing the, you know what? Right. And, and it involved him, Cohen, right? It involved Trump's fixer. So Trump's, even... Trump's fixer was involved uh, because, you know, these guys all like the way they do their business. This is the, and this is the way elites look at things. They do stuff, not like the, us little people like you and me. And, and he's clubs, there's pictures of uh, Junior at clubs like raves clubs. And I mean, it's right. Not, uh, and I have those pictures. I, yeah. I, and, and, you know, there's like no alcohol there at the school or anything. And boy, they're throwing it back. You can see in these pictures. They're really partying and having a good time. Of course, you see pictures like that later that came up on the boat, who was Rick Hendricks boat, the uh, NASCAR owner who uh, worked a deal where they took Liberty money, millions and millions of dollars to the NASCAR team. And that's whose boat uh, he was lying to use when he, you know, the last time he got in trouble publicly, but I mean, it was as sorted as sorted gets. Yeah, He's carrying like a highball glass. Like he's relaxing. Yeah. Yeah. But, I mean, going into the money, even Liberty university as qu a very questionable academic, uh, you know, credibility, I think. And it's really, I mean, the way it was run or is run, is very suspect because they're taking in almost a billion dollars of taxpayer yeah. subsidized funds for classes that may not be considered challenging. Right. Well, it's shooting fish in a barrel. You know, they complain. They hate the government. And as you see later in my book and the later chapters you've read, uh, hatred of government is essential because that allows people to get a pass. They can do whatever they please with any kind of watchdog. And so they have been from Jerry Jr. and the entire school have been the main thing about, you know, the government should not be involved in the regulating business. They shouldn't be involved in any public assistance for the poor or others and how evil that is. Although there's nothing in the Bible about it. In fact, as I show, it's sort of the opposite, but the, the, having said how evil the government is and it should never be in our lives, they are the biggest users of government money in America yeah. and Just definitely of any universe. The, the, the whole thing that keeps that whole operation going is taxpayer money, mine and yours. E you know, even all of us that will never set foot on that campus are bankrolling it. And, and one segment that they saw was easy money was the military. Right. They make it really, really easy for military people to get a credential. And, you know, I know some people who, and I'm not saying this for all of it. I know there's some good professors there. I know some people work hard on their degrees, but there are certain programs. Uh, the overwhelming majority of the students now are not on campus. They're, they're remote. Right, they're tele-students, tele right? And, and a lot of the most rigorous things that they do are have chat rooms and talk in chat rooms. And, uh, you know, I give some details in my, in my book, as you saw, about 
um, professors who really had high standards surely got, got put on the margins there at the school because they hired people that had to basically sign up X number of people per hour, like a sweatshop. Right. There like in the property. <laughs> yeah. It was a big telemarketing yeah. operation to sign up as many people and they had to get, you know, X number or they, they let them go. And they have these buildings to do because they have bought out almost all the real estate in the greater Lynchburg area. All of the major properties, malls and other things like that are all owned. And it's sort of, you can't see where the, the Falwell family ends and the Liberty begins. Right. Uh, it's just a, it's like a family business. Uh, you know, that, that may be starting to crumble now, but when I talked about it, it was like I denounced Jesus when I, you know, brought right. this up. So people were really, very angry about these truths that are very, and the sur even surface are very suspect. Like this is not, uh, it's not a, like it's, you're serving two masters. I mean, this is merely money, money oriented stuff. And you don't know what you're doing to those kids. You're churning them through. I wonder how many defaults there are, how valuable their, their education is, how applicable they can take that education and put it into the real world, whether it's just a, just a piece of paper, you know, right. so how they don't care. They don't no. care. They got their money. They, they don't care. That's their problem. You know, whether it's a hunting license or not, you know, for the rest of their well-being. Um, and it's getting worse. You know, they I mean, I, I've heard some pretty bad things about even like how they run their uh, parking and towing operation on there as a money making operation on campus right, right. and things like that. I mean, they, they leave no stone unturned in money making. And, it, and as you know, in my book, I, I say these things that these are currently happening, real world things that shows that our large scale institutions that a lot of us in the church have looked up to um, have been a, basically a big racket. And I say that not to tear down Christianity. I say it to preserve the real thing. Jesus was never part of any of that. The apostles were never part of that. I mean, they were in poverty. They, they just took just enough to get by, you know, uh, and I'm not saying that it's not okay to have a house and a car and those kind of things like that, but these people are obsessed with it. Their value system is that it's never enough right. until they destroy themselves and lose everything. But it's not just that they're greedy. It affects their how they look at the little people. It affects that, you know, they don't want any of their money touched. No matter they have much more than they could ever spend. They don't want any of it touched to help somebody who didn't have a dad who was already established and had a business for them to take over. You know, who didn't already have all these other privileges that they could be sent to the finest schools or whatever like that. And so they are the ringleaders in trying to stop making a, a fair, more, you know, I'm not talking about everybody having equal everything, but having more equal opportunity, which is what our country was supposed to be, a land of land of opportunity for others. And in the middle of my book, which I know we really won't be able to get into much today, is this is all preamble to what I found out how it really got started in the modern era because big business saw and put a bullseye on America's clergy and they figured out how to exploit them. And it's just like the picture you see in Revelation 17 of the woman riding the beast and that beast will turn on her eventually. But, um, you know, th these are real world things that are happening in the newspapers. And some of it even happened again after I published this. It finally come to fully uh, fruition. But money has always been a poison, particularly in people of faith, 
and that nothing makes it look uglier to people who are on the outside that are inquirers and see maybe, you know, they want to know what happens when they die or they want their life to have meaning and they see this kind of stuff and it rightfully disgusts them and it needs to be exposed. Actions need to be taken to, to humiliate and do what needs to be done to these kind of people so that what's genuine can remain. Agreed. And one of the points that I missed to make when you talked about deregulation, these guys don't want any regulation because they don't want to be regulated. Exactly. So they supposedly have, oh, yeah, deregulate the government's bad while you're doing all kinds of subterfuge and bad things. And I remember when I was talking to Warren at Ministry Watch, it's like you're doing with money, but there's no oversight about who's giving money to this group, how much of their income is going to these guys. I don't know if that's ever been disclosed in any church right. in any way. Why, why are you allowing maybe this old lady who's on a fixed income of 1500 bucks give you $700 a month? I don't know. That doesn't well, seem fair. So, but. Official church, churches don't have to report anything, really. Right. Uh, nonprofits do a Form 990, and you don't really know anything about organization until you get your hands on them. You could go under GuideStar or ProPublica, and you can actually get these, these forms, and there's a whole lot not answered in them. But sometimes it'll actually have the major donors and you think, oh, wow, most of this money's coming from overseas. I'm amazed. You know, it's coming from either Israel or some other place or whatever. And it starts looking like a front, you know, or um, you look on who's the board, the board members. These are people I never knew publicly. These people were sort of running this and you get certain cast of characters that pop up on all these boards. And then it starts to clarify what the agenda was for these organizations. But for churches, you have people now that like focus on the family stuff that, you know, they aren't a church, you know, they're, they're um, more of a public interest kind of thing. I mean, virtual lobbying thing, but they're forming themselves now as churches, like, like the kind of church where the steeple has services because there's zero oversight over what they do. And people like Warren Smith and others are trying. I mean, he, he's a well-established, well-credentialed, person, you know, from the history and the higher echelons and Christian media. And, and he's trying to expose this kind of stuff, but boy, it's not really popular at all. And they have found presidential support in recent years to provide cover for him. One of the main things they were going to try to do, and this, I didn't really get in this into the book was to, and, and um, Trump promised this to his religious right followers, but they, he never got around to doing it was to overturn the Johnson amendment. And what's and the, the Johnson Amendment? The Johnson Amendment forbids nonprofits like churches to engage in overt political activity during their actions, like, for example, endorsing political candidates from the pulpit, for example. Now, that doesn't sound, I mean, that, for an American, you think, well, gee, there's freedom of speech. Why shouldn't they have a right if they want to do that? to do that kind of thing, even though, again, they're, they're not taxed like regular political action groups or whatever. Here's what will happen when, if that ever gets taken down, if that happens, the churches are going to be flooded. The churches who are compromised. And we have a lot of them here in the Nashville area that are well known and have big money because they bring in guys like Oliver North on the 4th of July to speak. One of our churches here is, has brought in Roger Stone recently for his great spiritual insight for everyone. Um, what happens is those kind of churches are going to be flooded with money because that money, not only is it, it's not taxed, it wouldn't be traced. 
and all these donors who donate would get a tax deduction for donating it to put a mouthpiece up there to say, you need to vote for candidate A or for issue B or whatever like this. I mean, you won't see money going anywhere else because that'll be the main place where it goes. You have captive audiences in the pews. They have a media empire that these these places already have to disseminate out to millions of people. And people don't think this stuff through. They don't think about that, that there's people of bad intentions, some of them external to the church and some of them setting in leadership positions in it. Uh, and the rest of us are going to be victims of it. And they're going to control the paradigm. They're going to control the narrative that we're exposed to. And you don't put that toothpaste back in the tube once it comes out. Agreed. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's pretty incredible. And how, you know, how, how, and I think that's the theme of your book is really how based in scripture are these groups. And I think you go into that section of your book, the gospel of Jesus and the gospel of Hannity, Fox News, and the conservative talk radio. They're different gospels. There's no doubt about it. There's no overlap. I take about 30 hot button issues and, you know, I quote verbatim the teachings of Jesus, the apostles, the prophets, and then I will go, like, here's the positions because, hey, I've grown I've grown up in it, you know. I've been one of these guys down there outside the Fox News studios in New York waving, you know, and looking at them. And it took a long time for me to start asking some questions. And I'm embarrassed how late in life because that was in the middle of who I was. So, you know, I know the positions that are there. But, um, you know, this whole thing about not wanting regulation. The Bible is very, very pragmatic in common sense. Because a lot of these things are timeless struggles. And, and the point that's made in Scripture is, is that God expected your, your elected officials or your leaders to make extra care that the rich do not exploit the poor in the marketplace or in the courts. Those are two major examples they make. And those are the two places where they get exploited. And so over and over again in Scripture, and you see me quote this, that government was to have an active role in that. And, you know, when you go back to the Old Testament, the Mosaic Law, they had two big things. One was the Jubilee. The, uh, um, Jubilee. Yeah. Well, they had the Jubilee, and then they had the Sabbath year. Every seventh year, people were supposed to, like, put their greed on hold for a year, sit back, relax, enjoy life. God says, I will give you an abundance, and I want you to let the land rest. I want the land to rest and not, don't squeeze every little ounce of mineral out of that ground. Let it rest, which which leads me to believe that God must be some kind of, you know, tree hugger, Gaia, you know, earth worshiper, right. because he actually cares about the earth. And it says that anybody who needs something can wander on your land and just pick it off there. And you're not saying anything. You don't right. go. You don't you go quote, to, yeah. That, you quote that section of the Old Testament where you're supposed to leave some stuff on the plants for. Right. People well, who are travelers or, or well, e- even when you're doing your regular harvesting all the years, you don't go back for a second go because he expects he left some of it left back so that those people who had harder times and you had widows, orphans, other people who had had something terrible, people who are disabled uh, could help themselves. And you're not to complain about it. Uh, when these people came, you know, to help themselves, you weren't supposed to check IDs or some kind of litmus test on it. But on the on the uh, Jubilees, that was only once really a generation. It was every 50 years. And and it was supposed to be a time of celebration. It was it, it called a time of liberty. And what would happen is all of the land would go back to the original owners of the land. So 
it, you know, how else do you call it? It was sort of a redistribution of wealth. I mean, I know that really rankles us as Americans, but the reason why was already during the time that Israel got settled in the land, the, the assets were starting to accumulate in the hands of smaller and smaller numbers of people. And it always does. Anytime you have a fairly open economy, it's going to centralize on whoever is the greediest or the most ambitious or cuts corners or whatever like that. And so there was just a law that said every 50 years, you know it in advance. You're not going to be surprised. So when you go buy a piece of property, if you got 20 years left, you sort of prorate the price. So the person is not exploited when they buy the property. They know it's going back to the original hands. They uh, Slaves were set free. Um, debts were canceled. And what happened was it was meant to keep a healthy, uh, indefinite society where you had a healthy middle class, you had everybody prosper. And so what people miss was that when they eventually went into captivity, and I quote the prophets on this, that say this explicitly, it was not because necessarily their idolatry, as terrible as it was, or for some other things that they did. It says that they went into captivity because, one, they were going to be in Babylon for every year they didn't let the land rest. God was serious. He was going to let that land rest, and it was going to grow up and get its rest that they wouldn't do. So one way or the other, it's going to happen. The other thing was they didn't distribute back to the poor for the Jubilees. So what happens was they, they hauled off all of the elites from Israel to Babylon in chains. And what Nebuchadnezzar did was he gave all the land back to the poor. The poor received the land. So God made sure that this happened one way or the other. Now, it would have been a lot easier if the people would have said, hey, let's do it God's way, and we'll all be very prosperous. We'll all be able to share the wealth, and good, you know, hard work will still be rewarded, um, and we can last indefinitely. But greed always gets in the way, and that's why we see even these televangelists. You know, eventually they have their fall. If not them, it's their kids eventually for it, and even when they're really prospering because money never gives satisfaction to it. So there's a long establishment, but the government was established to be a gatekeeper as a balance of power to what the Bible called the great city Babylon. The great city Babylon runs the marketplace. They run the commodities. Therefore, they run the courts. They run the politicians. They can buy armies at will. So somebody has to be a counterbalance to that. And in scripture, you see very clearly that's what the government's job was to do was to do that. Now we hear this message and Christians are, are saying it that, Oh, there's only one invasive power to us and that's the government. And that's why we have to stop it. And they don't realize the great city Babylon is the one who's whispering that in their ear and telling them that so they can stay in economic bondage because they're pointing the finger at somebody else. Right. Pointing the finger at the wrong person. I mean, they used to, at the foundation of this country, they used to have laws that didn't uh, prevented aggregation of, family wealth. There weren't little tricks people could use, trust and things like that. There usually was a high tax rate upon death, things like that, but that's all gone. So yeah. the, exact, have... the exact statistics are in my book, which you've seen, but somewhere on the ballpark of the top 1% in America have something equal to about 50% or more wealth in America. The bottom 40% have zero. Right. They have zero net assets. The, the middle class 60% have something like an average of $8,900 for right. total net worth. 
and and it keeps getting pushed from the one percent to the point one percent now. And if you look at the the rate of change in the twentieth century, it's taken off like a rocket. And so it's a recipe for societal disaster. Disaster. Yeah. It's truly I mean, a disaster. People don't have a stake in the society. It's over. And yeah. uh, that's the way it is. I think if there was a statistic, like half the families in this country cannot take an extra $500 charge. Right. You're exactly, oh. you're, no, you're right. One emergency. Yeah, one they emergency. $500 for an emergency. And, you know, we see ourselves as the land of plenty. And, and nobody, nobody likes to have money taken from them. I mean, that's not nothing any of us like, but the fact is when the really, really wealthy are so greedy, they're like Marie Antoinette, let them eat cake. You know, if they don't have bread, what happens is they're going to lose everything. And I have worked with some really, really wealthy businesses that bought my patents and did stuff like that. And greed was always their downfall when they didn't want to share with, you know, people's royalties or the people that work for them to give them their pay because they were already making a windfall, but they wanted more than a windfall. They always inevitably on my watch, they lost everything. And that's what will happen in America and, and other nations is that they will lose everything because of extreme greed. And that's not the way the kingdom of heaven will work. The kingdom of heaven is described in very, very different terms. And I hate to tell people what we think makes America today and makes it so great. That kind of stuff's not talked about at all in the kingdom of heaven. So it'll be on the ash heap, just like everything else. You know, and if you look at Liberty University, I went back and found their original uh, statement of principle, why they existed. And right there in the first statements of principle, it was to, to defend free market enterprise, to stop socialism and to fight political incorrectness. Now, you know, free market enterprise has done a lot of good things and maybe it's done some democratization in some aspects, you know, beyond what capitalism does, letting the money holders dictate terms. But having said that, I don't think that's the main purpose of what a Christian school is supposed to be founded on. And what all of these parents spend, I mean, we're talking a hundred grand in debt right. to send their kids there because they want them to get a Christian education about the lonely carpet carpenter, you know, who said the rich man can't enter into the kingdom of heaven and, and to learn how to be a good Christian. And these are the things that they're making a priority at these places. And this is where, like on the cover of my book, the snake whispering in the ear, when, when, when you find out later in the book, the national association of manufacturers, chamber of commerce began targeting the clergy. They created an environment that we now have today with these schools where, where money and wealth principles take up more of the time they talk about than lowliness, looking out for your neighbor, looking out for people on the margins of society, the golden rule, you know, doing under others as you'd have them do under you, having empathy. These are considered weaknesses. They're not considered virtues in this culture. No, I totally agree, 100%. I mean, it's weird to see that within Christianity, too. Yeah. Is this survival of the fittest, Darwinianism, and it's kind of cold-blooded, so what if them? And what's also weird is like Liberty University, Liberty University is probably like other schools in that they pool all those funds and then they put them on the market as a hedge fund and gamble right. and gamble with all the money they're taking from mom and pop who think 
they're sending their kid to a Christian school. Possibly there. Yeah. I don't know what the teaching's like, but well, a lot of it, a lot of it's buying real estate. They buy a huge amount. Now that place, you know, you're talking about that hostel down there. That was the, the gay friendly hostel where no religion was allowed. Um, you know, there's stuff like that, that, that trickles in there too. Uh, and that's just what came to the surface. Like who knows what, what they're really up to. You don't know the, the full story. That's just kind of what comes out, but. Yeah, you know, it, your imagination, you because you know you only have the tip of the iceberg right. because of people's persistence. People threaten to sue them if you talk about this stuff. You, you know, all these workers who know where the bodies are buried at, at, at Liberty have to sign non-disclosure agreements right. that Liberty will wipe them out if they ever share, including board members. I believe and, it. And, and my understanding, too, is that Jerry Falwell Jr. is not alone. I, my understanding is Franklin Graham was a little bit of a rebel, too. The beginning. I don't know if he really was uh, yeah. on board with that. He, oh, he was a big headache. <laughs> he he was the rebel. But so, you know, there's there's gold in them there, Hill. So you don't right, you don't so run away from ever when you feather your bed. Right. He didn't he didn't run too far away. Um, but that is, I mean, you have this full section upon this this distinction, and one of the distinction is conservatism and survival of the fittest, and this contradict you know distinction from the gospel of Christ, but. Just a whole bunch of a lot of different stuff like uh, that they just really aren't. The military, they're sympathetic towards the military. Anybody Social with power, justice is bad. People that carry a gun are going to be venerated and asked to speak in your church pulpit before, say, a social worker. Right. In most of the kind of conservative churches that I've been raised in, you know, someone who's a big jock, you know, who's famous, who's known for knocking people off their feet or a guy who carries a big, you know, gun in combat and has a necklace of ears, you know, around his neck. Those are the people that, that will be giving spiritual advice to the people in our pulpits. And you, you said the right word. And I mentioned this in my book several times, although really the libertarian movement that I have had a lot of fun thoughts about and have learned some things from, but it really goes back to Darwinism. It, it goes back to, a, a Darwinistic view of survival of the fittest and only the strong survive. And you could even argue the case that in civilization, in human civilization, you have basically two choices. You have the Darwinistic survival of the fittest, libertarian, everybody does what's right in their own eyes, or you have the teachings of Jesus where he says, you look after the poor, be poor in spirit yourself, uh, turn the other cheek, you forgive your enemies, bless those who curse you. And those things go in two completely different directions. But what Jesus was trying to do was to build a kingdom that could last eternally. And the only kind of kingdom that can last eternal is when everybody's looking after each other rather than themselves. And that's why things like capitalism run into a major problem long term because it's a ticket for the most ruthless to eventually have everything, you know, you get the last of the robber barons have everything. Now, you know, it's the it, way may, it is now we're it's, it's here. It's earthly, not something in the future. It's right. Right. Now. Right. Earthly. It may be, you know, one of the best compromises we can make compared to other things, but I'm saying there's not a destiny in a future and it's not a value system that Christians can try to spiff up and make anything sacred or anything noble about it because it really is a Darwinistic system. I basically, I guess what I would say, if I had to throw a blanket over like the 30 issues or so I bring of the 
the gospel of, you know, conservative talk radio, cable news versus what Jesus and the others say is that one respects power. One respects pride, arrogance, swagger. The other respects humility, putting others before yourself, um, being lowly in spirit. Um, one really likes an aggressive tone of going out and grabbing the brass ring and they admire it and they want to go learn how they can do it like these other people have. The other one admires the people who always put other people first. And it affects everything in our life. It affects how we handle our money. It affects who we pick to be leaders of our schools, our churches, our sporting teams, everything else. It's pervasive. It really it, it affects everything. It, it affects, it's a mindset. It is a it is a mindset of being lowly in heart or of I want to get my peace and I'm sorry who I who I have to step over. And we will rationalize it and say, oh, well, we're not like that. There, there's there's somebody worse than me out there. I, you know, I just I don't do that. But, you know, when you look at people who are fleeing persecution in, in neighboring countries that are doing exactly what any of us would do, grabbing their babies and their children running for their life asking for just some advice something to do you know and i've wrote, written about this on my blog the answer in the last few years was that what president trump told the soldiers that when these women come up if you see a rock in a kid's hand treat it like a gun now you know what that means i mean you know what, what that means the uh response is supposed to be and and they're seen as some kind of deadly enemy that's coming um when there are people of desperation and they're coming to quote a christian nation right. the land of plenty a christian nation and they're asking for mercy and you know i i suspect that a lot of those nations that have not invaded us that we've dropped bombs on and and it's hitting real villagers you know we don't see that on tv we just see a, a big explosion that looks cool but there's somebody getting underneath that explosion in their homes and those people are crying out to God for mercy. And God's going to hear their pleas. And he's going he's gonna to know who's the person doing the inflicting. And there's going to be an answer. And I don't know when that answer is going to be. Um, gotcha. You know, I, I, was asked, I was asked on a show a few you know, years ago. I was sort of caught off guard uh, by some guys who really looked up to me, you know, that thought I sort of mentored them. And they asked me right off the bat, they says, well, don't you think that Donald Trump and this election is, you know, that is a sign from God, that God's behind all this? And I thought for a minute because I wasn't prepared for that. And I said, well, that may be true. But I said, if it is, it's to show the spiritual bankruptcy of the religious right. And I and I, yeah, I say that because this is what I've come out of. I'm devoted now more than my entire life to following being a disciple of Jesus. But what I've what I've realized is you can't walk in the opposite direction and then say you're following Jesus or reject all of his values. Yeah. And the similarities between Trump and the religious right are disconcerting, to say the least. I mean, their 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 value systems are uh, unfortunately overlapping. They, imp they impress each other. You know, if you if you read what they said, Trump, when he had all of those like super televangelists there in there laying hands on him and stuff. He knew every one of them. He knew all of them. He knew what they did. He'd been doing his homework. Right. Um, he liked 
their aggressiveness, their ambition. He could relate to it. And he thought that they could be useful to him. It was one of these mutual back-scratching kind of thing. And they got it. They saw it. There's only a couple of them turned around and said, oh, I don't feel right about this. All the rest of them said, hey, we got an inside track now. Happy days are here again. And, you know, he's just a mirror reflecting who they are and what they are. And for those people who couldn't figure it out before what really they're about, rather than what they say, the piety, what they say, he, he was a help to make it so obvious that you have to have your head in the sand. Yeah, I agree. And, and, and four years leading up to an insurrection and their devout excuse for this. You know, you had guys, Odin worshipers, there shoulder to shoulder with guys with Christian flags on the same mission together. Right. That guy apparently did a chaos magic ritual inside the Congress building. Like these, these guys were doing something that was not Christian. So, but, but he said the word God, so it's okay. Yeah, that's he good. He says enough. the word God that he's one of us. But this, this is where things are coming. This is just the beginning of how bad it's going to be. I'm afraid. I hope not. But I had hoped people would maybe have some wits about them after January. And it's only gotten deeper. Uh, in my blog on the Two Spaz Report, I go into guys like Lance Wallnow, who's one of the heads of the Dominionist Kansas City Prophets. Right. And he sort of lays down this pious veneer that he has in the Crusades. And he sets it aside and he talks turkey with his listeners. And I have links on there you can see where he's just talking about, here's our agenda. Here's what we're going to do. We're going on a chaos tour. He's going to join the Trump family. He and these other religious leaders, Mark Taylor, you know, the Trump prophet, they're going on a chaos tour across America. Wow. And he was excited about it. Wow, I haven't heard that. Well, yeah, it's yeah, you can listen to it all back. In fact, I, I saved the video. Uh, and it wasn't one time he said these things. This is a consistency. There, there is a rottenness that's now getting more rotten. And we have to make a decision, particularly people of faith like myself. You know, are you going to play footsie with it? Are you going to look the other way? Or are you going to renounce it, take your lumps, and maybe try to salvage a testimony to our society who deserves an authentic witness? of what it means to be a humble humble follower of Jesus and a truth seeker. And anybody who's a truth seeker out there, I don't mean to be doing a lot of religious talk here, although that's part of who I am. Uh, but, you know, any of your listeners who are not into that kind of thing, if they're a real truth seeker, then we have some common cause. And if they want to be honest, and I think that's how you run your operation here, is that, is that if, if you're going to be honest with people, we're going to have some strange bedfellows in the days ahead. And I, you know, I'm just hoping they'll take me, you know, on, on conspiracy normal on Adam Sane's show, there's a lot of people into a lot of very different things from me, but I'm treated better there than just about anywhere. That's interesting. And I, I'm interested to see what God is up to and what everybody else is up to right now. Good. Well, we are at over an hour. I mean, we haven't even scratched okay. the surface of the book. I yeah. would love to, we'll have to talk again about uh, James Fifield. And one section of your book, which I think a lot of listeners would be interested in hearing you talk about, which is Babylon's Gnostic sorcerers that have influenced our shepherds. So that two yeah. fascinating sections to the book. Is there anything you'd like to add or anything I missed before we wrap up? Sorry, there's so much in there and we make so little progress with things. Um, but all this is preamble. Like you said, getting into the history with this James Fifield guy, which hardly anybody knows. 
Um, I, didn't, and I didn't know. And we're going to find out some things about uh, Mr. Gerald Hurd that even people who know him are not going to be right. There's a tremendous dedicated section to his involvement as the Pied Piper for our conservative clergy that you're going to find about in there. And there's a lot of stuff he's involved in that almost no one knows. But we're going to get into some of your more classic kind of material you cover if you'll have me back. Oh, I'd, 100%, I'd, yeah. I'd love to come back as much Great. as you can. But but it, even what you've read so far, you know that there's some neo-Nazis along the way. There's some UFO cult religion, paranormal stuff. All that makes its way into this narrative. And so it, it, we're going to have a lot of weird things. And it all connects to who had the ear of our conservative clergy for the last 80 years. And made a made a permanent imprint on it. Right. I mean, it goes back post war. It goes all the way back. All the stuff you see today goes all the way back based on your research. So great interview. Thank you so much. Uh, again, it's Michael Bennett. The title of the book is Two Masters and Two Gospels, Volume One: The Teaching of Jesus versus the Leaving of the Pharisees in Talk Radio and Cable News, published 2020. So, Mike, thanks for a great interview, and we'll be talking soon for sure. Thank you. God bless. Take care. God bless you.